The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The text for the sermon this morning is from Hebrews 1, verses 4 through 14. We're going to read 1 through 14 as we begin our, or as we prepare ourselves to hear God's word rightly preached. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word and seek to understand it, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. As we think about the meaning of the text that is in front of us and its application for our lives. We require your Spirit's assistance not just to understand the words that are on the page, but to understand where they actually touch our lives. How they apply to us today. So we pray that you would Shine your light through your word on the dark recesses of our hearts where sin hides, that you would reveal it, where we are afraid, where we are tempted. We pray that you would give us comfort and correction. I pray that at the end of this, you would lead us to rejoicing. Steady us in the midst of the seas of life, we pray. Through your word, in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Our lives are often filled with trial and tribulation. We've talked about it many times in here. You're either having just come out of a trial, about to go into a trial, or currently in the midst of a trial. That is the nature of the Christian life. And I don't know about you, but there have been many times in the midst of trial that I've, I've thought to myself, I, I don't know how to get out of this. And I don't know how this is going to end. What, what's going to be the outcome of this? And the trials that I've been through in 40 years are perhaps nothing compared to the trials that maybe some of you have been through in much longer, twice as long. What is the thing that steadies us? This theme of this sermon series through the book of Hebrews is an anchor of the soul. It comes from a passage in Hebrews that describes Christ as the anchor of the soul. What is it that when you're going through a trial, you need most? Trial is not only in the Christian life. There are many people who go through trials. Everyone in this world will go through trials. Some will seek out self-help books and meditation and yoga or various other activities that might settle them down in one way or another. Ten-step programs or other kinds of recommendations that come from secularists and people that tell them that the truth is within them and all those kinds of things. But what is it that is actually going to anchor you? What is it that you need, Christian, in the midst of trial or in preparation for trial that's actually going to prepare you to go through it? How is it that when you can, can be prepared now so that when you go through trial in that day, you'll be steadfast and immovable? The letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of people who have suffered persecution. We find in Hebrews 10.32, he says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, means after you had come to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They endured persecution after they came to Christ because they came to Christ. And as a result of their persecution, there was a fear from the author of Hebrews for their faith. Because he goes on to say just another verse later in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have no need, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's concerned for their faith. You have need of endurance, he says. I want you to persevere. I want you to make it because you've suffered a great deal before. 
In chapter 12, it seems that they've also, in addition to suffering at the hands of men, have been disciplined by God, perhaps for maybe sins that they've committed. And he's worried about how they're looking at the Lord's discipline of them. And so he says in in 12 verse 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. It's helpful to remember that at the end of the book of Hebrews, it's going to culminate in this charge from the author of Hebrews to these afflicted Christians that you must endure the trials that are before you. So what is it that he thinks is going to prepare them to endure those trials? These are Christians who have heard the sermons, they've attended the Bible studies, they've served the meals, they've clearly attended to the afflicted. Yet when persecution and affliction came to their doorstep, there is a temptation that pursued them that was telling them to run away from the faith. So remember, that's where the book is ending. So how is it that he expects to prepare them to be able to endure that trial. When it comes time for our faith to be put to the test. When you're at the tip of the barrel of the gun, or your neck is at the sword, or maybe you're just facing challenges of all kinds, in life, be it temptation, physical persecution, how is it that you're going to be able to endure? If your head is placed at the business end of the gun, how is it that you're going to persevere? What is it that you need to know to ensure that you endure? Our text this morning is one of those texts that you could potentially hear me say some of the same things that I've said for six and a half years now. There are no shocking conclusions here. It's possible that nothing here in this text leaves you perplexed or confused or with questions. It all feels like the usual logical conclusion to a logical first chapter. The author's been telling us since verse 1, that in the past, in the, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God spoke to His people through prophets. He revealed Himself through His prophets. But now He has spoken to us by His Son. And then He went on, and we've gone for the last six weeks or so, explaining the significance of the Son and why that's better that He has spoken to us through His Son. He calls Him the heir of all things. He says that through the Son, the world was created. He says that the Son is the physical manifestation of God's worth, His glory. He says the Son is the exact imprint 
of God's nature. He says that the Son is our high priest, and He has made atonement for our sin, and that He is right now sitting at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So with what we've come to know about the Son from the beginning of the book, this sermon might feel like a repetition to you. But I want you to consider it maybe in just a different light. It's possible that you might hear the sermons a thousand times. And when the time comes and your faith is required of you, you falter. The foundation that is being laid in chapter 1 of this book is written so that when the day comes, your faith might be strong. What sort of teaching would give you that kind of faith? That when trial comes, your faith would be strong. What sort of sermon, what sort of text, what sort of chapter 1 would be helpful so that your faith is built on a strong foundation? Perhaps you think maybe the author would start off with a, a good acrostic. We all like a good acrostic. Something that says like something clever. And then it's got a few good little points along the way. Something that when my faith is required of me and my head's at the tip of a gun or my neck's at the tip of a spear or a sword that I might bring to mind. Maybe that's what I need. Maybe I need a 10-step program or maybe a meditation of sorts, an exercise to clear my mind. No, in this passage, the author thinks that what's going to prepare you in that day is a strong theology of Christ. Here's what you need to prepare for chapter 11, 12, and 13. You need to understand who Jesus is. So why is it that he goes through 10 chapters, 11 chapters, even 12 chapters of repetition of who Jesus is? Jesus is greater than this. Jesus is greater than that. Jesus is greater than that too. Because in the day that your faith is required of you, that is the only thing that's going to be helpful. That certainly what he does the whole book, but chapter 1, he's laying this foundation that he's going to come back and address over and over. What you and I need in order to endure the tribulations mentioned in this book is a deep understanding of Christ. In this passage, the author of Hebrews begins a contrast between the Son of God and angels. And I know, maybe for modern audiences, that seems kind of out of left field. It seems maybe like, a, like a, a sharp turn all of a sudden. Jesus, the Son is this, the Son is that, the Son is that. Now let's talk about the angels. And you might think to yourself, why on earth would, it, would He bring up angels? And it seems strange to switch to the topic all of a sudden. There are, just trust me on this, very good reasons why he switches to angels, but he's not going to tell you what that is until chapter 2. And so I'm going to save it for a couple of weeks from now, maybe like a year or so whenever we get to chapter 2. <laughs> but it's going to help as we go through this for you to have your Bible in your lap, so just follow along with me as we go through this because there's a lot of verses, right, one right after another, they go straight through the Old Testament. 
So let's just think about this as he's giving one reason after another why the Son is greater than the angels. First, look with me at verse 4. He says, "...having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Now, when you, when you read this verse in verse 4, you immediately are hit with perhaps some confusion because there, there are a couple of phrases in it that are sort of strange. First, you notice he says, having become. And then second, he says, the name he has inherited. And both of these phrases, they sort of leave you with the impression that he wasn't originally superior to the angels but then he gained the name and he inherited the name. Or he has become and he inherited the name. He eventually became superior to the angels. But if your eyes are open to the verses that came before it, you can see all of the, all of the things about the Son that we've already said and just reviewed. That He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. The world was created through Him. He is the heir of all things. None of those descriptions mesh with a son that was originally less than the angels, but then all of a sudden became greater than the angels. You tracking with me? That doesn't, that doesn't mesh. But do you notice that in uh, this verse, it begins in the middle of a sentence? If you, you look, pay close attention there to verse 4 and what comes just before it, the sentence begins in verse 3 where he says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 17 most important words in the New Testament for sure, probably in the Bible as a whole, if you were listening last week. Then he says, Having become. So, in other words, Christ, the Son, became man. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and then He became. What you have to understand is that mankind, by His very nature, is lower than the angels. We failed our original commission. We were commanded by God to do one thing, to follow after God, to represent Him on the earth, and we failed in that in the Garden of Eden as Adam sinned. And we're now in a sinful state in which we endure temptation, we endure sickness, disease, we endure broken fellowship with God, and ultimately, we're condemned to death. That makes us, by definition, lower than the angels. So when the Son, who is eternal, that's what He's just been telling us about since the beginning of the book, the Son who is eternal became man, although He did not take on our fallen nature, he did subject himself to the temptations and the courses of this fallen world. So, in the next chapter, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us this about the Son in verse 7 of chapter 2. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. So he's saying about the Son that by becoming human... He was made a little lower than the angels. And then, after dying on the cross rising on the third day, making purification for our sins, He was raised to His inheritance, having become once again superior to the angels. So for a little while, He was lower than the angels. So He says, 
that the Son's superiority to the angels is demonstrated, you can tell this, in the ways that He is referred to in the Old Testament. So what follows after verse 4, from 5 all the way to the end of the chapter, is basically a contrast between the Son and the angels. And He's going to compare both of them, back and forth. And the first contrast we're going to see is there in verses 5 to 6. And it's the contrast between the exaltation of the Son and that of angels. So look at with me at verse 5. He says, For which, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In this passage, you can see this as it's indented in your text. There are seven Old Testament quotes in this passage. And there are three comparisons that he's going to make. And so he quotes these, the first three passages from the Old Testament. And the first two are from Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And both of these verses, both Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14, they're both promises that are made to David in regards to his kingdom. God calls David his son whom He has adopted. You are the head of My kingdom. I have anointed you as king and placed you on the throne over My kingdom of Israel. So He calls David His son, His anointed king. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, He, he promises to make David an everlasting kingdom. In other words, David, you're going to die, but your son is going to come on the throne and after him, another son, and after him, another son. In fact, your kingdom will have no end. You will never lack an heir to sit on the throne. Now think about that promise to David just for a second. To promise not only that your kingdom is not going to have an end, but that you will have a son from generation to generation. That's a significant promise. Who else could make that kind of promise? But God. And so he makes that kind of promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We call it the Davidic covenant. But in the context of what he's saying here, he's telling David, You're going to be on the throne. I am taking you in as a son. That's how you should consider yourself. But to which of the angels who are throughout the Old Testament referred to as the sons of God, which of the angels have received that kind of promise? Which angel has been singled out where God has selected them and said, you are to me a son? None of them are pointed out specifically as being begotten of the Father or being specifically appointed by the Father to reign over His kingdom. This son was. So if we're contrasting the son that we're seeing now, that He's describing to us now who is eternal, versus the angel's, there is no compare. Christ is given a kingdom no angel ever was. And then he concludes this contrast with this last quote from Psalm 97, verse 7. It says that all the angels are appointed to worship Him. The kind of Son He is, is the heir of David's throne and the ruler of all the earth. 
His appointment was from ages past. And what's more is that not only were the angels not selected to take over the throne of David, but all of them were appointed to worship this king. So when you compare and contrast the Son versus the angels, what he is saying is that the Son is greater than the angels because the Son is king. The Son is king. But in the second contrast, he goes through three passages again in the Old Testament to show the lasting ministry of the angels versus the Son. Look at Hebrews 1, 7-12. He says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have laid righteousness and hated you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So this first quote that he gives is from Psalm 104.4. He says that the angels are winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And in the same passage, if you go back to Psalm 104, in that same passage just before it, he talks about God being clothed in light. He puts on light like a garment. He rides on clouds as his chariot. So he says certainly of the angels that they serve him like the light forms his clothes, like the cloud forms his chariot. But I think he means more than that. He's saying about the angels that they not only serve his needs, but that their ministry is sporadic. It's occasional. It is here one minute and there the next. Just like a wind blows in gusts, or a flame jumps across the fire pit. You see it here one second, and there the next. All of the angels are appointed to serve His needs, and he, they go where He directs them. Their ministry is at irregular intervals. It happens here, and then it happens there. But what does He say about the Son following that? That's not the ministry that the Son has. He quotes two psalms there. The first psalm is Psalm 45, verses 6-7. to this is not a psalm that's addressed to the king. Uh, th- sorry, this is a psalm that, it, that is addressed to the king that sits on David's throne. But notice that the psalmist is even looking beyond David. He's seeing that one day that he would occupy the throne, the, the one that would occupy the throne would not merely be David's heir, but would actually be God Himself. The reign of the Messiah who would come to occupy David's throne, unlike the sporadic ministry of the angels, would be of the eternal God, who would be forever. The second citation there is Psalm 102, verses 25-27. to He says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. This saying goes all the way back to verse 2. If you look back in verse 2, he says, what about the Son? Through the Son, God created the world. 
Only now he's being more descriptive. He's saying everything that could be said about God the Father in creation is now being said about the Son. He is not only the Creator, not only through Him were all things created, but He is the author and the finisher of creation. When all things are over, it will be because the One who upholds the universe by the Word of His power has said it's over. He will change this world and all of creation like a garment. His activity in creation, far from being sporadic like the angels, is eternal. He commands everything. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He commands all things to come into existence and to stay. So in this contrast, He's saying the Son unlike the angels, is the eternal God. Not only is He King, but He's the eternal God. So the role of the angels as ministers at His command is to go wherever He tells them. But His power is eternal. Just as He had no beginning, He also has no end. So if we're contrasting angels, they go where He tells them. Versus the Son, He's the one at the helm. He's the one commanding. He has no beginning and He has no end. So then we come to this third and final contrast there in verse 13. It says this. Look with me. And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. The Old Testament passage that he quotes here is Psalm 110, verse 1. And it's one of the most often cited verses of the Old Testament in the New. One of the most famous examples of this citation is from Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he poses a question to the Pharisees. Up until this point in the Gospels, the Pharisees have been the ones asking Jesus the questions. And the reason they're asking Jesus the questions is they're seeking to trap Him. To lay a snare for Him. So they ask Him questions that might turn the public's opinion against Him. So they would ask Him things like, hey, so about taxes. You think we should pay taxes or not? I won't ask for a show of hands of who likes taxes, but I would guess it's probably none of us. Also, it's none of the people that are around Jesus at the time. And so they present him with a question where there is a no-win situation. No matter what he answers, it's going to turn the public's opinion against him. Well, one day, as we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's Jesus' turn to ask the question of the Pharisees. And so he presents them with this passage, Psalm 110, verse 1. It says this in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? 
whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now pause right there. He's asking them this question because they would all know that the Messiah, the king, the one to come, is going to sit on David's throne. He was the one that was promised. He's going to sit on David's throne. So naturally, he's going to be an heir of David, a son of David. So they answer rightly, he's going to be the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So you see, he's trapped them because he says, if you're following along in your Bibles, you, or, you, or if you ever read this, you could probably see, he says, the, the Lord, it's capital L with lower or small capital letters O-R-D, which means Yahweh, the Father, the Lord, said to my Lord, this is the Messiah to come, the one who is going to save Israel, the one who is the heir to David's throne, David is saying in the Spirit, the Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I, until I put your enemies under your feet. He says, if David then calls him Lord, referring to his son, how is he also his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> See, this psalm is, is really interesting because it's written by David. And it's about the Messiah that would come from David's line. And David is looking forward to that day. And he's saying about the Messiah that he is both my son and my Lord. And the Father is going to say to my Lord... Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. But more than that, this is the son of David who is also his Lord. He's going to sit at the right hand of God. And what is he going to do there? All of the enemies of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all of the enemies of the Lord are also the enemies of David's Lord, who is also David's son, who is also the eternal son of God. So he's saying here that the son, unlike the angels, is not only sitting at the right hand of God, but is bringing all the enemies of God under his feet, bringing them in submission to his rule. So the author of Hebrews uses it to say that this position of authority at the right hand of God is only reserved for the Son of God. Not for any angel. Not even for David. But uniquely for Him. And this position of the right hand of God, putting all the enemies under His feet, is one of judgment. So when Jesus is standing in front of the Pharisees, and he says, riddle me this in Psalm 110. He's drawing their attention in a not-so-subtle way to the fact that the enemies of the Son, the rightful heir to David's throne, and the Messiah, 
the enemies of the Messiah are actually enemies of God. And Jesus is here to judge. See, in just a few chapters after that, they're going to end up putting this Messiah to death. And he's reminding them, be careful. Because you're putting yourself not only as my enemy, but as an enemy of the Father. They're going to be brought into submission. They're going to be brought under his judgment. This is probably the reason no one dared ask him any more questions after that. But this is exactly his point. This is the point of the author of Hebrews. That unlike the angels who are appointed to serve, the Son is judge. He's not only king, he's not only God, but he is also judge, and he is currently bringing all of his enemies in submission under his feet. Now, here's why that matters. There are two types of people in this room. The first are those who don't know they're in need of God's help. They don't know they need the help of God and they can't really identify the sin in their own lives. But likely they can easily identify the sin in the lives of others. They've become more concerned maybe this week who's going to win the Super Bowl than what happens to their soul when they die or what is the real meaning of life. They can think of no more boring exercise than to listen to a sermon on a Sunday morning. If that's you, then I want to say to you that this text is more important than you could possibly fathom. It's presenting to you Jesus Christ. He's the eternal Son of God. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is King. He is God. He is Judge. There is going to be a day when your soul is required of you. And here's the hard part about that. There's not going to be any warning except what I'm giving you right now. One day it will be over. Everyone, everywhere will be going about marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking, having feasts and festivals, celebrating Super Bowls and all kinds of other things. And all of a sudden, it will be over. And there will be no warning. And when that day comes, it will be too late. But the important thing in this passage that you might miss is that as King and God 
and judge. Who having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As king and God and judge, He will forgive you. He alone can forgive you. He is the only one permitted to grant forgiveness. He's the only one. Not me. Not anybody else in this room. Not the Pope. Not anyone can grant forgiveness. Only Christ can grant forgiveness. And He promises you, He will. The warning is right here in this passage telling you that He is King, that He is God, that He is Judge, and that He's putting all His enemies under His feet. No one is going to be spared except those who are forgiven, whose sin is atoned for. Not any angel, not any demon has the power to grant anything to you except the Son. This passage is far more important than you can possibly ever realize. So what do you do? You confess your sin to Him now. You believe in His death on your behalf. You trust that He can actually forgive you and that He will raise you on the last day. That's what you're putting your faith in. And you might think to yourself, there's a lot of sin. There's a lot of things there that you couldn't possibly imagine. And I'm going to tell you, that train doesn't stop there. It keeps going for the rest of your life. Even as a Christian, you'll find out 40 years down the road, you go, man, there's a whole lot of sin. And what you find out is more faith is required of you then when you realize how bad you actually really are. <laughs> you come back and go, is it really possible that He can forgive me? And the answer is, He already has. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's over. It's finished. There is no more left. So yeah, faith in Christ is putting your trust in that, that He really does forgive me. And that He really will raise me to eternal life. The alternative is to face Him as judge. And it's not going to be pretty. There's a second group in here. And it's those who know that they need God's help. They know all too well what that's like. We live this life and it's tumultuous and it's filled with hardship and it's got trials of all kinds. It's, it's overwhelming and it's rough and it has a tendency to leave scar after scar after scar. When you get older, it's not now only you that you're worried about, it's your children. And it tends to leave, again, scar after scar after scar. So when the author of Hebrews is looking at a congregation 
who has faced trial after trial after trial and their lives are turned, it seems, upside down and they're being tempted to flee Christ and run somewhere else. How does He begin His message to them? With a ten-step program? With an acrostic poem for them to remember? No, He gives them 13 chapters of theology about the Son. You need to understand exactly who the Son of God is. How does He expect your soul to be tethered when all life is tempting you to run? When the seas of your life are turning you upside down? How can you possibly endure when Satan is threshing you like wheat? What is it that you need to be assured of when the storms of life are tossing your boat around? This is what you need to be assured of. Everything that you're going through, good and bad, positive and negative, hurts, hang-ups, habits, all of it are going to end up before the feet of Jesus. I will tell you some of the scars are not going to the wounds are not going to close up before death. There's hurts that will last the rest of your life. But the promise that he gives is that he will wipe away every tear. You hear that? That he will wipe away every tear. Not, not, he'll pretend like the tears never existed. Not, there will be no more tears. He does promise that too. He doesn't just say there will be no more tears. He says he will wipe them away. Meaning that you're carrying them with you. Those burdens and those frustrations and those fears and those hang-ups and those scars and those wounds, you're going to carry them with you until they end up at His feet. And on that day, He will rectify them all. You understand? That's the promise. Not that He'll forget all about them. Quite the opposite. He remembers every single one of them. And as King, as Ruler, as Eternal God and Judge, He alone is able to do that. So for those of us who are looking for an anchor to the soul, for those of us who know in this life I need God's help, the author of Hebrews says, look to the Son. There's your help. He is all the help you need, and it's going to require faith. It's going to require trust. Knowing that on that day, the judge will rectify everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray only that you will help us trust. We pray for the hearts of those in here who still are questioning. 
perhaps cannot see their sin. Pray you open their eyes that they might see. It's the only way that we can come to salvation is when we see that we have sinned against you. So we pray that you would open their eyes to see the sin that they have committed and where their soul stands now before you that they might repent and trust in Christ truly. Pray for all of us in here who know we need Your help, that You would give us the utmost confidence to trust in the saving ability of Your Son. Where we lack faith, we pray You supply it. Give us confidence and assurance that on that day everything will be rectified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.